Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener and that's what you do. You listen. Let's get right into it. Jamie Metzl, a brilliant guy. He's a futurist, a geopolitical expert, a writer. He's written a new book called Hacking Darwin. It's really good. We talk all about genetic engineering and the future of humanity. He worked for good old Uncle Joe Biden, uh, everyone's favorite vice president. And I just love talking to him. So everyone enjoy Jamie Metzl. Moose flavor, Lacroix. It's a, it's the higher end flavoring. I, I'm really excited. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And but that it's in French makes me feel confident about it. I know, right? You speak French, right? I do. I do. I know. I heard you on Rogan. Okay. Oh, good. Man. Yeah. No, that we were just talking about that. Oh, that was a great experience. I think it's been downloaded seven million times, and all these people are finding me out of the woodwork. That I just that would have never found me. I love it. He's the golden ticket right now. It's incredible. He's Johnny Carson. He's Johnny Carson and Oprah. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. In like a beautiful 5'9", MMA-loving, like... You know, he's such a great guy. So interesting and just interested. I think that's... I was trying to think of like why Joe Rogan and not other people. Mm. And I just think it's the way he asks questions. It's just like this aw shucks attitude of just openness. And he's asking questions that just regular people would want to ask, but people kind of get a little afraid to ask things, especially if there are people who are talking about areas where where the guests are experts. And I just think that he's, yeah. just, he's just kind of open. Uh, it was great. I love, you're so right. And he is surprisingly quite brilliant because um, yeah. I, I only knew him as a comedian and right. an actor, but over the years to hear the pod and, and how intelligent he is in so many different realms. Yeah. But you're right. I think there's a lack of vanity with him. So he's not afraid to ask and yeah. doesn't he doesn't feel the need to stick it up like he's happy to allow the interviewer right. or the interviewee to kind of shine. Yeah, and we, which is great because it shows just so much confidence on his side. Mm. I mean, he's not trying to prove anything. He's just like really open and really curious and recognizing that there's a big crazy world out there and there's a, so much stuff for us all to learn if we're open and communicative with each other. And on top of all that, rich, Jamie. God, is he rich. You know, Jesus. we should all be rewarded <laughs> for doing what we love. Boy, oh boy. I mean, I would love to know what that's... I've only heard about the studio, but I yeah. hear it's quite the setup. It's really nice. Um, so, uh, Kevin, your producer and I were talking just as I as I came in about the experience of being in that in that studio. And it's really a guy space. I mean, there yeah. are antlers. I went to, to, the, to the restroom before we started, and there's like a neon painting of like a naked woman. There's like <laughs> a big, some kind of bear hybrid chimeric stuffed animal, there's a gym. I mean, it, was just, it was like a guy kind of place. I, um, 
you know, I'm so happy to have you on the show, and I, I've become more familiar with you over the last week or so, sure. researching and, and whatnot for the interview. So let's start, softball question, nice yeah, and easy. Sure. Are we fucked? <laughs> we are, yeah. No, no, I get that asked that a lot, um, but not so concisely. <laughs> and the thing is, we are on the verge of the most wonderful, incredible revolution that's going to help us live longer, healthier, more robust lives, cure all these and prevent all these terrible diseases. And we should be thrilled about that. And there are some real dangers. We could abuse these technologies in ways that could really screw us. And the difference between the great story and the terrible story is us. And that's what I'm doing with a lot of my life energy is saying, well, how can we make sure that we're investing to increase the odds that the great story is the one that happens and the terrible story is one that doesn't happen? Is it, you know, I sometimes wonder in the age of like Trump and people going nuts about our you know, political climate and what have you, I sometimes wonder, have people always been this way? Have we always had these debates where people in the 1600s going, it's all coming to an end? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. Actually, every movie, it's like, <laughs> the end is nigh, I think is the way they used to say it in those old days. It's true. It's part of our nature. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm going around the country and the world talking about the genetics revolution, how it's going to change anything. And let's say I'm speaking for an hour. I'll speak for 58 minutes and I'll say like, here's here's the thing, we're dying of all these terrible diseases, of cancers. Uh, we just think it's normal when a 90-year-old person gets dementia and loses their mind. And right. yet we've in, we societally and have invested 90 years in that person's wisdom and love and ideas. And so, oh, it, oh that just goes away. That's just the way of things. So screw that. Let's fight back. Let's have our 90-year-olds have 10 more years of sentience. And it's wonderful. It's exciting. But then I'll say the last two minutes of my talk, but there are some real dangers and these terrible things could happen. And, and like with every technology, we need to be mindful. And then it's exactly, every, everyone will say, oh my God, the end is nigh. <laughs> We're screwed. Right. Run for the hills. It's funny. I had um, Safi Bacall. On oh, I know Safi. He's you an know? old friend. Yeah, great guy. Oh, what a love. And and he was kind of, I, I in an effort to debunk conspiracy theorists who I can't stand, and I was like, Safi, you're, you're at the forefront of cancer research. Sure. And I said, is this ridiculous when these conspiracy theorists say there is a cure, they're just hiding it from us because there's no money in a cure? And he's like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And he said, A, there's 300 different types of cancer, so it's going to be quite hard to ever, in quotes, come up with a cure. And he's like, you know what we don't get a lot of credit for? Pretty much ridding the world of infectious disease for the most part. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like it's incredible what we've done. And ever this whole thing of like we're going back to some great time in the past. I mean, this is the great time. We are living longer, healthier lives. We have all these terrible diseases. Like we are all superheroes with these superpowers of our immunizations that we take so for granted, people say, oh, I don't need, I don't need, to, I don't need to, to immunize my kids for measles. I, who cares about measles? It's only killed hundreds of millions of right. people. And so we just, we take for granted all of this incredible progress uh, that we've made. What do you think, I mean, that's such a topic that, that resonates with me. I have a seventh month old kid. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. And he's pretty cool. And, you know, we've given him all the shots and done the thing. Right. And I just, you know, 
there's a part of me that says, I don't care what you do with your kid, but it's negligent for you to have your kid near my kid if he's not vaccinated. Like, I do care. If you don't vaccinate your kid, your kid, you are screwing your kid, which I care about as a human, and you're screwing me and my kid and society because you are depending on the herd protection that if everybody around you is immunized and your kid is the only non-immunized kid, your kid is safe because of, of, of the numerics of, of herd protection. But once you get above like 5% of non-immunized kids, mm. then everybody is at risk. And I guarantee you, like if there is measles that's like killing millions of people or smallpox that's again killing millions, hundreds of millions of people died from the, the Spanish flu, all these people who are the anti-vaxxers, they are going to be lining up to get their kids vaccinated. No one wants their kids to die from a terrible disease. It's just that they get something for nothing. So yeah, no, the anti-vaxxers actually piss me off. I do care. Right. I, yeah. I think so too. That also for me, you know, when people, and obviously there's there's the the topic of global warming is this weighted subject. And, and yet the people that are sort of anti-climate change and all these things, I always want to say, well, where does science end for you? At antibiotics? Right. <laughs> like, no, it's so true. It's where so does true. it end? Yeah. No, it's, and, and there's kind of this, this contradiction um, in the genetics world um, where I do, where I operate a lot and in the climate change world because these same progressives, and I count myself as a progressive, when you have the argument about climate change and people say, well, climate change is real, it's man-made. And you say, well, how do you know? It's like, are you a climate scientist? And they'll say, which is a very logical response, well, I'm not a climate scientist, but the United Nations pulled together the top climate scientists in the world and more than 99% of them agree that climate change is real and that it's man-made. And then you talk about genetically modified crops and you say, you know, Genetically, we have every, pretty much every living recipient of a Nobel Prize in science has signed a petition saying GMO crops are safe for human consumption. There's been more than 30 years of studies all around the world. There's never been a single study that shows that GMO crops are unsafe for human consumption. And so what I'll say to, to these other progressives is like, that seems like evidence. Mm. And then they'll say, you know, this, all this science is rigged, it's biased, Monsanto has paid off every scientist on earth. And Ugh. so I, I'm a big believer in, in, in science. And I, that doesn't mean that science is always perfect. Science has our own biases built into it. But I think that we ought to try to, to, do, to use just analytics to try to figure out what's better and, and what's worth analytics plus, plus values. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. 
Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So I think you had mentioned that on, on Rogan where like basically everything is slightly genetically modified and some of it's on human growth hormone and some of it's on DECA, right? Well, <laughs> basically, you know, so some people say, well, I'm against genetic modification. Mm. And, and I say, well, what are you for? And they say, well, I'm for nature. Mm. And I talked about this with Joe and it's like, well, what do you think nature is? So you might say nature is if we go back to those good old days when we were living in caves and our lives sucked. Yes. <laughs> you know, guys, you're in a cave. You don't leave the cave because you're going to get eaten. Terrible you have, Wi-Fi. You, you, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Your whole life, you have this total fear of starvation. So your life is organized around scrounging for calories. I mean, we were, we were just victims. And so when we developed agriculture... When we uh, developed medicine, that was we were fighting against nature. That's the history of our species. That's why we're here, in, in living in a city, using technology with these superpowers of of, of immunity. And some people say, like, what we think of as nature isn't natural. And the question is not natural or unnatural. Like we've already, we're humans are we're all in on unnatural. The question is, what's the right balance between? protecting things as they are and changing things to make them, at least from a human perspective, better. So it's like, I I mean, I notice it with produce and, you know, those $12 Rainier cherries for half a pound at the farmer's market do taste better than those $3 ones from the grocery store. It's so true. So that's great. We should do it. I just, what I'm saying is that we shouldn't just elevate this into some kind of universal principle. So it's more delicious. And and a lot of these things like corn, it's just in many ways a human creation. I mean, 8,000 years ago, corn was a weed with a few kernels. And so we just need to recognize that even the things that we call natural organic from the farmer's market, many of them, most of them are in, in many ways creations of our ancestors. Um, that's fascinating. So I, you know, I was listening to you on another pod and, and I'm fascinated with this cause I'm part of the tribe. You're a Jew from Kansas city. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> very proud of it. I love it. So I, do you know who Tim Blake Nelson is? No. The actor, you know, he's in uh, so many brilliant character actors and so many Coen brothers movies. Oh, I do know him. I listened to him on, I think it was on Terry Gross. Yeah. And I loved him. I saw this guy is so wonderful. I actually, uh, sorry to, to miss that. No. I sent him a note. And I never heard back. So, Tim, if you're listening, please respond to my email because I think you're wonderful and we have this very similar history. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating because his parents, too, were Jewish refugees. Who, yeah. I think they went to Oklahoma or something. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Will you talk to that where, like, Jews were sort of spread yeah. out amongst uh, America's <laughs> heartland? <laughs> you know, it, it's such an important story, especially now when we have this – the president of the United States turning against – Immigrants. I mean, we're, we're a country built by immigrants. We, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. So my family story, my father and grandparents 
Uh, my father was born in Austria in a little village uh, in 1935. In 1938, uh, the Nazis came to that village after the, the Anschluss, which is when Austria and, and, and Germany merged uh, politically, and basically put the Jews, it was just, I mean, basically their family and then maybe one other family, on a truck with one little bag and just stuck them in the ghetto in Vienna, where my great-grandparents actually died because they were, um, they were diabetics and there was no, uh, there was no insulin. My father uh, and his parents snuck, which was very rare, from Austria into Switzerland. And then they were displaced persons in Switzerland for 10 years from 1938 to 1948. In 1948, US immigration law changed. We had before 48, even, even I mean, all th during the war, and even after the war, um, immigrants and refugees were blocked from coming to the United States. In 1948, Truman, who's Harry Truman, who's also from Kansas City, he went and he toured the displaced camps in Europe. And he said, this is insane. We have all these people, they have nowhere to go. And that's when U.S., uh, we opened uh, the gates for, for immigration. My father and grandparents came. They arrived in New York um, on the ship. Um, they were then sent by Hyas, which is the, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the Jewish Refugee Agency from New York to Kansas City. And they arrived in Kansas City with just these little placards over their necks with like a little, like a little cardboard. And then there was people who met them from the Jewish Federation of Kansas City, and they had like a like a safe house where they took them and and to help get them settled. And then my uh, my they opened eventually a little kosher meat market in Kansas City. And when people would come wow. into this meat market, they would say people would say, "Well, how much is this sandwich?" And my grandmother would say, "It's." 25 cents for the sandwich and five cents for Kurt's medical school fund. Right. And so then my father went to medical school. And then like every American, like then, you know, we have, it's, it's part of the, the way that we've, we've built this country. And it's, it, that's what's so incredible. And it's, you know, it's, my story is not unique. And there are all of these kinds of people, these in, people who would love to be in America, who could build and defend and fight for this country, and that doesn't mean we should have open borders, but we should recognize the incredible benefit that we get from immigration. Uh, first of all, you're so. I, I want to get back to that, but why? Why does it seem that no Democratic candidate can quite say what you just said? Because they're afraid, and I, I just think that everyone's trying to balance what they believe in. And then there's so much pressure on both sides. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm kind of distressed about where we are politically now is that we have on one side Donald Trump, who's throwing flames and trying to push everybody to an extreme. But on the other side, we have people like AOC and others who are doing the exact same thing. And maybe mm -hmm. they're progressives, and I'm also a, a, a progressive, but I'm for open exchange and open discourse. And we shouldn't have a purity test. What we should say is what's the best answer and what's the biggest coalition we can bring together behind doing something that's that's good. So you know, I, I say this all the time. I've written about it. We should say that every U.S. embassy, your job is to find the most talented, creative, incredible people, entrepreneurs, artists, in every country in the world and just say, hey, we'd love for you to move to the United States. Here's a green card. We're going to help, help you get settled in because we have a 500-year plan of making America 
ever greater and we need this we want the most talented people in the world to come to to the United States and instead of that we're having a conversation about how to keep people out and certainly we don't want unlimited flows of uh, of illegal immigrants uh, we need to have I mean refugees is part of who we are and it's certainly my history and I think that Democrats are afraid that there's a purity test on the left they have to stand up to Trump but there's a purity test on the left and if they say something that sounds somewhere in the middle, like we need to have skilled immigrants, which, are, which we do, they feel like, well, they're going to get slammed by people are saying, well, are you saying skilled versus unskilled? Are you saying legal versus illegal? Right. It's such a hard thing because I think we've seen now after almost three years of Trump in office, his base is his base. They don't give a shit. There's yeah. nothing that's going to dissuade them. There's no brilliant, you know, Mashiach Democrat that's going to come out of nowhere. And like, <laughs> you, you may have a couple of Gentile listeners. So Mashiach means Messiah. Yes. FYI, dear Gentiles. Dear Gentiles, we love you all. But like, the, the, it's not going to exist, right? right? So then we have to find that Democratic candidate that can rally the left because there's right just more of us we yes. just don't vote yeah and but again and bill maher had that great quote when it was hillary and bernie and then he was talking to sort of the big bernie fans in 2016 going if you can't have the fish just eat the chicken exactly. like at least you'll be full like no it's just so crazy that the the people who supported bernie and didn't vote because they couldn't bring themselves to support hillary those are the people who elected Trump. Right. Yeah. It's just, And those few idiots who voted for Jill Stein, but that's a different story. <laughs> what about, because you worked for Uncle Joe, right? Didn't you I work did. for Biden? I did. I yeah. did. What was that? And that was early though, like yeah, early yeah, that, 2000s? Well, that's when he was in the Senate. So right. he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and I worked for him. And, and Joe Biden is a great guy. He's a wonderful human being. Um, he has been just an incredible champion of progressive causes for 50 years. Yes, our society has changed. Yes, he has. I mean, when you go back historically where he thought he was being a centrist, he, it was, he had views that now are, are distasteful to many of us, my, myself included, but he has been a champion for these views. And that's why it was really sad for me uh, to watch uh, Kamala Harris, who I also respect, but she just like gutted him like a fish. Right. And, and it just, it didn't respect who he is, where he comes from, what he's contributed. I mean, you can, we can have a, gr a great debate about whether Joe Biden is the right first person to be the next president of the United States. My personal view is we need somebody younger and fresher because we, 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 the message of the Democratic Party has to be that we're a party of the future. Mm. And we keep having these candidates of the past, which like John Kerry and Hillary. Uh, and I think those, these are all amazing people, but I think the positioning of, our, of the Democratic Party has to be we are a party of the future and we can have faith that we can have a, a next generation voice that can lead us. It's such a good point with during the debates where, I, I mean, I, I think Buttigieg came off the best. Yeah. And yeah. he's just proven time and time again to be pretty brilliant, just yeah. sort of a bit young, but otherwise like, yeah. and it, I don't know where I heard this, but someone said, you know, when you get into a fight with your spouse, the idea of total obliteration, right. like completely crushing them, their point and winning on every level. Yeah. And then going to bed next to that person is fucking ridiculous. No, it's so hard, but within marriage, there is a structure 
that incentivizes long-term cohabitation and compromise. The problem is that our political structure is incentivizing extremism. And there are, there are a lot of ways. One is the, the campaign finance structure, that everyone is competing with everybody else. And now, in, in our age of, of social media, you need to have the microphone, and you get the microphone through controversy. And the second thing is the primary system um, where you have to kind of you have to go through the tunnel of your party extremists to win the nomination to be in the the general election in California, your open primaries have actually done a lot to bring people more toward the center, and that's the kind of thing that we need because it's it's a lot of it. This is structural that in these early days of the primary race, everybody is competing for whether it's the far left if you're a Democrat and the far right if you're a Republican. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Do you think there'll ever be campaign financing reform? I, I hope so because I think it's the, the current structure is so toxic. It, will, it is killing us and it will kill us. And the problem is um, that the Supreme Court needs to establish principles around which campaign finance reform can happen. And so far, that hasn't happened. And that's why the, these fights that we have had and maybe will have over who gets to be a Supreme Court justice are so impactful. And, and you know, what happened with, the, with Merrick Garland, where it was just basically a judicial coup that happened at the end of the Obama administration, that's going to have a, hu- a huge impact on these kinds of, uh, of issues. Yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting. I, I don't know who, you know, sometimes I listen to Ben Shapiro for counterpoint. Yes. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. because I don't want to be in my own echo chamber. It's so important. Everybody, I mean, we have that opportunity um, to just listen to people who totally agree with us. And mm. it's just, it's so dangerous. And I, you know, I, I certainly, you know, I listen once in a while to Fox and, and other things. And it's not that I agree with it, but we like we have to find a way to come together. Even you know the most X, whatever it is, right wing, left wing, whatever. Like we're all Americans, and we're all fa- trying to build this country together. And if we can't find common ground, then we're just going to be battling with each other of our little group and their little group. And we've seen what happens. We've seen what happens with Rome when you have that model. It doesn't work. And it was interesting to hear, and I, I think he made some point to the effect of like. It's not just money. He's he said because yeah, we've got the Koch brothers, but he's like, I mean, I'm pretty sure they're leaning to the left. He's like, but they're the richest people in the world mostly are libs, especially in America. He's like, so if like Bezos and Zuckerberg and like two other people were like, we're gonna buy this thing. Yeah. Like, but he's like, but you don't and you can't. He's like, so it's not a money versus money thing, because we all got a shitload of money. It just seems like you Dems don't know how to win. It, you know, it could be. Um, but like I, I would push back a little bit because mm. the, what's what I see happening is that in the Republican Party there's kind of a coalition of the kind of big money people who some of whom of whom are ideologically driven, and some of whom recognize that if you have a deregulated deregulated low tax environment, there's certain people who win, and it's super wealthy people will get 
wealthier. And so they are bankrolling this party, and the party is doing two things. One, it's agitating this base on these on these social issues that are never going to change. I mean, the gun issues, abortion issues, even race. Mm. Um, the, 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 the superstructure probably isn't going to change, but a lot of people are getting agitated and motivated. And these people are then voting um, to keep these this group in power. And the second thing is just is meddling in the infrastructure of democracy. And that's why this redistricting is so toxic. You look at a state like North Carolina, I mean, it's kind of even, even Democrats and Republicans, but the Republicans have pretty much have almost all of the House seats and all of the electoral votes. Um, and and that's the thing is that, if, if, that we will increasingly be in this situation as we've been in past elections, where the majority of the population isn't determining who is representing us, whether it's the president or in Congress. Well, it's it's such a good point, too, about like how unified the the Republican Party is, because Al Franken is the best example of this, because yeah. we we the left chopped his head off. Yes. And I heard Bill Maher say some, something to the effect of when Al finally decided to step down, he said it was because no one would talk to me yeah. on the Senate floor. Like, yeah, no, it's and that's the thing is that the Republicans are unapologetic. They have the thing that they're doing when Mitch McConnell basically just scotched uh, the Merrick Garland nomination for the Supreme Court. They were just totally unapologetic. And the Democrats, we are increasingly having this purity test for ourselves. So when they say like when they in these debates, everyone raise your hand if if you want to have a single payer healthcare system, Medicare for all. And frankly, I think that that is actually eventually having a single payer national healthcare system is a good thing. I mean, we're going to need it. We have to have it. I agree. <laughs> I agree. But if you're having a political campaign and the goal is becoming president of the United States and most Americans are happy with their health plans and you say, we're going to take it away and we're going to give it to the government when there's been since Ronald Reagan, a camp thing that the government is bad, the government is trying to, to screw you. It's not good politics to win an election. Well, you could, and so I liked with Obamacare, I said, well, we're going to introduce you to these ideas that you're going to get comfortable with, that they're mm. going to be standards that um, you, you're covered per, for pre-existing conditions, your kids are, are covered and, and build there. But we have this purity test that everybody has to be all in for everything all at once. And we can do that, but I just don't think we can win if, if everything is about the purity test. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I just think as soon as we get into things, uh, I heard it said, like, Dems have to get over the gun issue. We just, we're never going to win it. And like, we just need to stick to the three things we're good at, which is education, healthcare, and climate change. Well, you know, so the, the, the thing with, the, with guns is that we, that we need sensible gun regu uh, regulation. Um, but we have to be in power in order to get it. Mm. And so we have to, it's not the, what are all the right things to do? The question is for now, what are the, how can we build a coalition that is going to put us in power to be able to fight for all, all sorts of, uh, of things? And I think that's the, the, the balance. And that's, the, I mean, this is about politics as much as it is about right and wrong. And those things are connected but if we have if we have purity test driven politics and everything is about right and wrong, uh, and we should have right and wrong, um, we're we're going to lose with that. And mm. then how does that help anything? 
All right, let's go back to being a Jew in Kansas City because I'm fascinated. Now, I had heard, I think maybe Tim Blake Nelson had said this, that, you know, there's sort of Jewish epicenters in in this country, be it Great Neck, Long Island, or- It's not Kansas City or Oklahoma. (laughs) But I'd heard that they, that, tell me the name of the the foundation that, that moved your family. Hyas. I had heard also that, these 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 companies like Hyas was it was also in a need to sort of spread Jews around totally so that we don't get attacked. Well, I don't know if it was about getting attacked. It was just that at this time when there were these mass migrations, there were like a shitload of Jews going to New York and New York and New York. Right. And so the way it happened with my family is, so I don't think it was about getting attacked at but all. But so we don't get wrangled up again. I mean, no, no, I know. You don't I know. think so? You know, you use the word Mashiach. I'll use a, another Yiddish word. I think that we don't have to, it's like our, we all maybe have it, shtetl thinking. <laughs> so mm, there's a little bit villages. of Villages. Yeah, yes. Um, so so basically with them, my grandfather had been a horse trader in their little village in Austria. And so there were these Jewish communities all around the United States that were open to helping Jewish refugees resettle. And so when they, they asked my, my grandfather um, in Yiddish, um, they learned about his background and said, all right, well, based on your background as a horse trader, which is kind of like a... Just as an aside, it's kind of like a used car salesman. The one story that I've heard from my father is so like when you're a horse, um, um, a, a horse trader, kind of like a used car salesman, you want to say, well, like, this is a great horse. Like, this is a great car. Right. And some of the problem is that these old horses, they kind of don't stand straight. They kind of don't look. And that's the, you know, the thing, don't look a, a gift horse in the mouth. Right. And so apparently, and, uh, you know, this is all mythology. I haven't seen this done. Apparently... And you, your listeners um, can try this at home. If you stick a turnip up the ass of your horse, it stands up straighter. I'm trying that. <laughs> Kevin, please make a note. Kevin, my, my producer, make a note of that. I'm going to definitely do that. Anyway, so my grandfather had been a horse trader in their, in their little village of Austria. And I don't want to turn him in. He may or may not have, have been part of this. And, and, and there's different sized turnips, so, so you never know. <laughs> Um, and so they said, based on that background, we can send you to one of three cities, Sioux City, Iowa, Louisville, Kentucky, or Kansas City. Holy shit. And nobody spoke a word of English. And so my grandparents, they went to my, ask my grandfather, my father, who was 13, well, what do you think? And it turned out that there was this guy, a German writer named Carl May, who used to write cowboy and Indian stories published in German. They, they were sold for one shilling. He'd never been to America, but he's kind of imagined these cowboys. And then in those books, which my father had read, there was a reference to Dodge City, Kansas. And so my father said, oh, Kansas, I've heard of Kansas. Like, Kansas exists. Right. And so he said, okay, Kansas City. Wow. That was how they picked it. Was, it wasn't some kind of super strategy about avoiding wrangling, although I, I get that feeling, but um, that, that was the story. And so, and that's why in all of these little villages, like I was just uh, two weeks ago in Leadville, Colorado, in all these places, there were all these these Jewish families. A lot of them uh, were involved in the dry goods business, which mm. meant like there was the railroad. And, and and so every little stop, there'd be somebody who was selling stuff like a little general store. And that was kind of a traditional Jewish business. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let's talk about your new book and... I'm I'm fascinated about like genomics and right. all these things. So I mean, take take it away. Yes. Yeah, so uh, my new book, Hacking Darwin, it's called Hacking Darwin: Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. Uh, it's just out, um, and it's about how the genetics revolution is going to fundamentally change our lives. It's going to change our healthcare. It's going to change the way we make babies, and it's going to change the nature of the babies we make. People understand that climate change is a big deal. People understand that AI is a big deal, but people don't really yet understand as much as we need to how the genetics revolution is going to change our lives. And what I'm trying to do is bring everybody into this the conversation about what's happening, what's at stake, and what we can do to optimize the good stuff and minimize the bad stuff. So I, I was thinking like as far as like like I just had a kid. Yeah. And so and it's amazing. I have friends whose kids are three, four, five years old, and and I'm already taking tests for my son that they weren't aware of. Right. Like just in that. I mean, you talked about Moore's law. Is right. it? Yeah. How things double every two right. years in technology. Computing power. Yeah. So what? Like, I, I'd be fascinated to know what you think. Like, it's going to look like in ten years from now, in twenty. Sure. And then 40, I'll be dead. I mean, you're not I've gonna got be high dead. cholesterol. Also, no, no, you're going to be good. I, <laughs> I also write about, about, uh, about human life extension. So the, the genetics revolution, what it's really changing is it's recognize, helping us recognize that biology is a form of information technology. Like our genetic code is code. And we are learning how to read that code. That's what we mean by genome sequencing. And to write and hack that code which is what we call gene editing. Maybe some people have heard of a gene editing tool called CRISPR, which is just one. There are many others and, and many more coming. Um, and that is going to really change a lot. So in different categories. So in healthcare, um, we are right now we have a world of generalized healthcare based on population averages. You get treated based on the fact that you're a human, mm -hmm. um, which is a pretty good way to treat someone relative to, to the old days. And symptom-based, right? Symptom-based, like exactly, symptoms. exactly. And so we're moving from generalized healthcare to precision healthcare. And so precision healthcare means that you're going to be treated based on your individual biology. Like most cancer drugs, just like, oh, well, you have liver cancer, here's a drug for liver cancer. And then we find out if you're a person for whom that drug will do, will benefit or not by taking that drug. But if we knew more about you, we'd say, well, here's a drug we know will work for you based on what we know about you. Right. And the way we're going to know about people is through all sorts of information, life experience, uh, family history, biometric information. But the most important piece of information is people's genetic information. So uh, with the cost of genome sequencing moving toward zero, 
everybody is going to be sequenced just as a part of routine healthcare. Probably it will happen at the hospital just after, after you're born. And then we're going to have these massive billion people genetic data banks. They're going to have genetic information uh, and what we call phenotypic information, information about how those genes are expressed over the course of people's lives. And by using big data analytics to understand the interplay between those two things, we are then going to crack, increasingly crack the code of human genetics. And that's going to very quickly move us from a world of precision medicine and healthcare to predictive healthcare and predictive life. And that is going to mean from birth, you're going to know a lot more about how certain aspects of your life are likely to play out. What are going to be your risks for maybe for genetic diseases like early onset familial Alzheimer's? What are special capabilities that you have? Um, and then for traits, are you likely, more likely than not, uh, to, be, to be really great at abstract math or physics or sprinting or all of that, that kind of stuff? And then we're going to, so that's in healthcare. And then in baby making, which is the killer app of the genetics revolution, we're going to move, I write a lot about what I call the end of sex, which means the end of procreative sex. Mm. And more and more people, which is already happening in certain parts of the world, are going to have kids, or conceive their kids, not through sex, but through IVF and embryo screening. And we're going to use all of this increasing knowledge of the genome to be able to make more informed decisions about which among a person's uh, roughly 15 um, eggs that are extracted and then can be fertilized, which of those are implanted in the mother in IVF. And then we're going to use stem cell technologies, again, already work in animal models, to, ha to have a woman be, or even a man, uh, be able to make millions of eggs. Right now, eggs are, are limited based on our, our female biology. So let's say you take a skin cell, skin graft, turn those skin cells into egg precursor cells, egg precursor cells into eggs. Now you have, let's call it 10,000 eggs fertilized with the male sperm. You have an automated process uh, to seek to extract cells from each of those 10,000 eggs at about five days and sequence them because the cost of sequencing is going towards zero. And now you have real choices for which of your of those 10,000 options of your own natural kids wow. to implant. And then on top of that... What if they're all assholes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it depends. You think then, about that? You know, because luckily, like, so let's say you're an asshole. <laughs> then you should have, you if you're selecting a mother, you find a non-asshole mother if you want to have a non-asshole kid. But can you imagine how judgmental you'd be about like, well, listen, we all have like one or two asshole, like this jerk's got 10,000 yeah, idiots. Exactly. Like, well, no. So that's a, actually a good idea is like, if somebody really wanted to say, well, I'm gonna make like a little army of my kids. Right. Yeah, but like, the good news is we have this thing, genetic diversity. Mm. Uh, Darwin called it random mutation. And so even if you're an asshole, and your wife is an asshole, and who knows whether assholeism is a genetic trait <laughs> at all. And certainly, it, it's got to be uh, uh, genetically complex. With there's enough diversity that some of your kids will be non-assholes. I think Mendel, Gregor Mendel, the the, uh, the great scientist who, who came up with the scheme of of genetics, he actually in his research he had asshole peas 
and non-asshole peas. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, it's fascinating too, right? Because if we're, if we're sort of picking the best of the crop, let's assume that like... Yeah. Well, who knows? Let me stop you there. Yeah. Who knows what best means sure. from an evolutionary perspective because... All, there's no good and bad in evolution. There's just better or worse suited for a given environment. So there could be something that seems best to us, but then the environment changes and this thing that was the best becomes the worst. I mean, this this typical, and it's 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 a bad model, but like there's the the white moths in the winter and then the snow melts and it's like, oh shit, I'm a white moth, I'm screwed. Right. And so I think that's the, that, that principle applies to us. So we need to be very careful about when we use um, these terms like best and worst. And yet we live in a society where there are judgments made and people feel like it's better and there are lots of reasons to think that from the social science research that like having a higher IQ is better than having a lower IQ and having a higher IQ correlates to all sorts of things, marital stability and health and wealth, and mm. um, and yet, if everybody selects, should select kids based on the same type of intelligence, that's a pretty dangerous outcome for our species. But it, uh, at first, I would wonder, like, I mean, because it's so enticing, right? Because right. we all want to sort of yeah. streamline our, sure. our our kids, but also, like, I don't know, I, there are so many scumbags in my life who I really love. Like, my buddy Terrell does credit card fraud, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea no, but that Terrell like, wouldn't get chosen. <laughs> but Terrell's like a Robin Hood. I'm sure he's using the credit card fraud yeah. to help the needy. That's well, amazing. And Terrell's a saint. To have an S class Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure he's going to donate to the poor. And I, I really have no doubt. That. But it, yeah, it feels like it, it's so fabulous. And yet, do we lose all the characters? Do we lose all well, the that's, that's a great fringe point. characters? It's a great, and I write about that in the book. That we, have to, I, we have to, diversity for four billion years has just been baked into our genetics. It's something that just happens to us. Mm. And now we will increasingly have the ability to make selections. And if we don't recognize and articulate what we mean by and celebrate diversity, we could really harm ourselves even by pursuing things that seem inherently good, like eliminating disease risks. And when you talk about like, uh, I actually have a buddy who works in genomics at, at one of those data banks you're talking sure. about. And so he aggregates all this information. Yeah. And he was just saying how it is so the the medical industry is so um, they're they're just so stingy with their information. They don't want to share it with another hospital. So if you have Jane who has a typical type of breast cancer and right. she's responding well to a certain treatment, and then you have someone who's got a similar genome yeah. code in Florida and they're at a different hospital, there's no way for them to know right. that Jane is responding well to this treatment that would work well for them. It, it, so it's really crazy, and that's a regulatory issue, and that has to do with the way in the United States we're organized to do healthcare. That's why I was saying before, just having a single-payer healthcare system like they have in the United Kingdom makes so much sense because you get somebody who's being able to look at the whole of the needs of the country. Mm. But right now, we have all these individual hospital systems uh, and individual data sets, and they all have to protect. I mean, they, by law, they have to protect the genetic privacy like of the HIPAA. people. Who, yeah. So, and HIPAA is great, but privacy is a double-edged sword. So a country like China doesn't have these same kind of privacy restrictions. China is building these massive genetic and, and more broadly uh, data sets. 
And they're going to use that to become world leaders in precision medicine, in, in genetics. And they're going to be able to do, maybe they'll do a lot of harm, but they're also going to be able to do a lot of good. And that's why uh, you know, we, we struggle a lot with this issue of data privacy. And certainly genetics, uh, genetic information is the most intimate form of data. But we have to share this in information because we are all going to be able to benefit from these big data pools. I mean, that's the name of the game for healthcare and for economics and for national competitiveness in the 21st century. But we're doing that now, right? Like all these new sort of data centers that are aggregating information from many hospitals. We're, we're starting to, but we do, it's hard to do standardization because the different hospitals all have different uh, information systems. They all have different uh, data privacy uh, protections. So in an ideal world, we would have a national regulator that was starting to, to standardize these kinds of, of inputs. And maybe we'll get there and companies like Google and Amazon are working to say, well, how do we have these even disparate types of, of data sets and bring them, uh, bring them together? Because with these learning algorithms, um, the, the data still needs to be structured. Mm. And that's a big job when we have this, this mishmash of systems like we have in the U U.S. healthcare system. Well, it's interesting because my friend was saying how, you know, once you become an oncologist and you're treating cancers and you have your own practice or you're working under a, you know, a, a specific hospital, he's like, unless you're on top of every new paper and all the new data, like literally something could have changed a month before yep. and it's working beautifully in another state that you mm -hmm. won't know for years. Yeah. And that's why um, I think within... 10 years, I hope it's sooner, um, it will be malpractice for a doctor to practice medicine not accompanied by some kind of artificial intelligence. I mean, wh whatever it is, it doesn't need, it's not a robot, but some kind of, of mechanism because there is literally no way for a doctor to have all of the relevant information to treat a patient. And there's no way for an AI algorithm to have all of the wisdom and maturity and interpersonal skills to treat a patient. So people say it's humans or AI. I think it really is humans and AI. And we need to find the, the story of the 21st century and beyond is how do we find a way to work together where we do what we do best and AI does what it do, uh, does best and we do it together. Well, it's fascinating, Mike. Um uh, you know, in heart transplant surgery, they have the Da Vinci, right? right? Which yeah. is like six different robot arms. It's yeah. being controlled by the surgeon that can do yeah. very exact, precise work. Right. When do we get to a time when maybe there's a doctor overseeing it, but the robot's working completely autonomously? Yeah. I hope soon. Um, you think so? I, I think, well, it depends. Um, you know, there, there's an issue of trust. Like right now, um, we go on airplanes and then the, the, you get on and there's this usual... Usually it's a guy and he's like, a, he's got a uniform, he's got a hat. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the pilot. And we feel this comfort in having a pilot. But we're not that far off where we really don't need a pilot or we certainly don't need two pilots. And there's just, the, the pilot is there just in case anything goes wrong. Mm. But a plane is, it will be a drone. Our, even our, our jets are mostly drones now in terms of how they operate and for how, how much of the time in a regular flight the pilot is actually holding the, whatever it's called, the steering wheel. Um, and 
so, but we feel this need to have this person. And it's kind of like the the priest in a Japanese wedding. They have all these white guys and just they just put on a little priest outfit because if you're a Japanese wedding, you need a priest and a priest is like a white guy and so right. <laughs> to get like some tourist and 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 sign them up. And so so we're going to need to have these humans in part just so that people will have faith that they're interacting with with humans, but there're going to be a lot of things that AIs can do better than we do. And and that we shouldn't be Afraid of that, we just need to manage that. It's so funny. My buddy Kareem uh, trains pilots at mm. Boeing, mm. and I once asked him what it's like when you're piloting some like you know 747 massive jet, and he's like, "We take off, we put newspaper over the windows because it's bright as fuck right there." He's like, "And we're weathermen. Yeah. We're just tracking weather." Yeah, and he's like, "But it's on autopilot, ninety five percent." And I was like, "What?" And he said, "Josh." We're going 500 miles per hour. Did you think we're turning right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, no, it's exactly. But but we have this feeling mm. like, oh, there's that guy who's there. And that's that's just going to change because, you know, why is it coming back to your question about, about robots doing surgery? Like my interest, if I'm having surgery, is precision. I just want the best surgery possible. And so I definitely would want to have like the doctor and AI maybe doing some practice runs in a virtual me and then deciding what's going to happen with the surgery, locking it in, trying it out in, a, in, a, in, a, in an avatar, and then saying, all right, now AI controlling this robot, you do the surgery. Because mm. like you're getting your brain surgery. A lot of this brain surgery is very manual. It's like a, someone with like, a, like yeah. it's, it's very tactile. It's, it's like scraping the, the grouting out of your, uh, your bathtub. Right. And so it's like, shit, you know, I don't know what that guy had for breakfast, whether he's having a hard day, whether he had too much coffee in, in the morning, like a robot. Yeah. I, I can know, understand the variables. Put a little Kahlua in his Starbucks that morning. Maybe. Don't you think? It's yeah. like, yeah. He's going to sneeze. Don't sneeze if you're doing my brain surgery. I mean, uh, it's funny. I read um, Dr. Keith Black's book, who's the mm-hmm. head of neurosurgery at Cedar sinai And he talked about when he's doing brain surgery, he's like, the entire goal of brain surgery is don't touch the brain. Yeah, exactly. He, he's like, I'm literally spending hours teasing a tumor out of the brain, trying not yeah. to touch a thing. No, no, it, it's, yes, like that's the thing. So many, many years ago when I was a White House fellow, Sanjay Gupta, now with CNN, was was my um, White House fellow's classmate, wonderful guy and a, and a close friend. Sorry to interrupt, what does White House fellow mean? Okay, so in the 1960s, President Johnson uh, created this program for mid-career people, where they would bring uh, people usually in their 30s into high-level positions in U.S. government for a year. So you'd become like a special assistant to the Secretary of Defense or the National Security Advisor or these kinds of things. And then there's a class that's selected every year. Usually it's about 15 people, and and traditionally it's like many thousands apply. And then there's this this very, very long and and convoluted and and sometimes even painful selection process. And then you're a class, and so everybody has a job. But then as a class, um, you meet with all the cabinet officials. You go on trips around the world. And so it's it's this really, really great program. So Sanjay, he gave a, a talk, and this was decades ago, 20 years ago, he gave a talk about brain surgery. And I and you know, everyone would say, well, oh, it's not brain surgery, like meaning like it's not, a, but then it was like, hold on a second. So a lot of the time, like someone gets hit in the head and you bore a little hole 
to ease the pressure. It's kind of like Easter eggs. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of like brain surgery. Like there was so much of it that was like, oh, like you, you just drill a hole. That's, that's brain surgery. I yeah. thought it was really complicated. I could do that. Right. But I, I'd probably hit the brain thing and probably kill somebody. Oh, man. I, I worry. I would love to feel what it's like to be a surgeon just for like, this I just want to wear scrubs around a hospital, <laughs> hang out in the commissary. You know, I just want yeah. Yeah, yeah. It'd that's be great. Yeah. every Jewish mother's dream, you know? Exactly. Um, but your mother should be very proud. You're doing, you're a pioneering in a, in a brave new world. She is. Just ask her. Oh, well, good. <laughs> she, she should call in too. <laughs> she calls her Facebook page my website. <laughs> that's actually because it just pictures of me. Well, you be good. So I, I and I only have one or two more questions. But sure. I found it fascinating, um, and uh, I was listening to a podcast you did in 2017 for sure. a pod I think called the Ivy, uh-huh. and you mentioned it too on Joe Rogan's pod. And I think it's important to mention you were saying kind of like you mentioned a couple of things that Trump is doing well. Right. And it had to do with certain things with China and right. NATO and and whatnot. So will you speak to that? Sure. And, and let me talk in broad principle and then on, on this specific. I am not a fan of, of Trump. Mm. I think what he's doing now is terrible, disgusting, and racist. And yet he is president of the United States and I am an American. So it, I, it is in my interest for Trump to do as many good things as possible. And if that's one, one is better than none. And if one is happening, I, I mean, I'm certainly a big critic, but if something is good ha- is happening, I want to encourage that by saying, hey, that's, that's good. Totally agree. So again, so the, a lot of terrible things and I'm deeply distressed about it, but uh, China, for example, I think that China um, has taken advantage of the United States, that the United States, we had this philosophy that if we embrace China, if we help China, enter the modern world through the, the WTO and, and open trade, that China was going to become a more responsible, quote unquote, responsible stakeholder in the international system. But the exact opposite has been, uh, has been the case. China has gained the system for its own advantage at everybody else's expense. And countries have, have national interest, but China is, because China is so big and so powerful, they are on the verge of breaking the international system. And so um, certainly in the beginning of the Obama administration, the philosophy, which I totally disagreed with then, um, was, well, we need to embrace China. We haven't shown them respect. Once we show them respect, then they're going to be better actors. And that was this whole thing. We didn't mention human rights on Hillary Clinton's first trip. Uh, Everything was so gentle. And China said, oh, good, these guys, they're so weak. They're not standing up to us. Then Obama got stronger, uh, and, I, and I definitely supported this, this strategy of using trade as a lever, trade and troop movements in the uh, moving from the Atlantic to the Pacific of, of U.S. naval power. And, and it was terrible that Trump on his first day got rid of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But in his crazy way, Trump is actually putting a lot of pressure on China with this this trade war. I've, uh, for a long time, I've been saying we need to have chemotherapy. Like it's like forcing China to either play by the rules or just protecting our companies is going to hurt us. Mm. But we have to hurt ourselves in order to protect ourselves. Because what's the alternative? Having all of our intellectual property stolen, having all of our companies forced to transfer their technology if they want to, to operate in, in China. And so there is a moment of leverage where if Trump plays his cards right, we could maybe get concessions from China. 
And if not, say, look, China, we'd love to trade with you. We'd love to have a, a, this mature relationship. But if your actions are undermining this international system that benefits everybody, we're not going to stand for it. And so lots of ways that Trump is not doing that. Um, but I think that being tough on China is actually something that's uh, that's that's positive. Okay, let's talk about North Korea. Yes. Oh, man. First of all, I have so many questions. Did you take this special flight in into North Korea or did you go, did you do like the zigzag across? Well, no. So, so um, I've been to North Korea twice. Um, the first time I crossed by land from mm. the north of North Korea, yeah, from China. And then we zigzag, zigzagged by land across the country, visiting all of their, most of their special economic zones. And so that, you know, I, I've probably seen more of North Korea than most everybody else in the world, including the vast majority of everyone who lives in North Korea, because they aren't allowed that kind of, uh, of uh, freedom of movement. And, uh, and then I went in another time, which was a more, special, uh, a, a more superficial visit uh, to the Kaesong Industrial uh, District, which is between uh, North and, and, and South Korea. And it's, I mean, it is a crazy, crazy place. I mean, it is, it's, there's not a, a stick out of place. There's not a single piece of garbage. It's the most organized place I've ever been. Uh, that it, it's, there's, when I looked at these fields, I and mean, I've spent a lot of time in the developing world, I've never seen so few tractors, so little machinery. And mm. then people were, people were pulling plows on their backs, uh, but everybody was working. The streets were lined with people who were like, raking rocks and picking up leaves. I mean, the whole thing is the the country is in many ways a work camp to kind of keep people working so they don't challenge the government. Does it feel, I always imagine that North Korea feels like a, a TV soundstage, if you've ever been on one, because you walk in and it's these beautiful sets and then you go through a door and you're like, there's nothing here. It's like blazing saddles. It's yeah. plywood. Yeah, so, so the cities... I mean, when you drive through or walk through these cities, it's like these huge roads and no people. I mean, most people live in, in the countryside. And the reason is you're not allowed like, to get into Pyongyang. You, it's not like somebody can say, hey, I'm going to visit Pyongyang today. I wonder what's happening there. I'm going to go catch a movie. Like you have to have three generations of loyalty in your extended family to even set foot there. And so it's 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 just deeply controlled. It's a totalitarian system with around 100,000 people in these gulag prison camps. And that's why it's just terrible that um, President Trump is has basically given all these concessions to Kim for nothing. I mean, we've given away everything. We've received nothing. Haven't mentioned human rights. We haven't mentioned this terrible abuse of, of North Korean uh, people and so it's it's really really dangerous. I mean, there's no indication that North Korea has any plans to to give up its its nuclear deterrent. And why would they? It's such a great point you made on Rogan, where because all my friends on the right will always say like, "Look what he's doing! What's he he's doing? He's taking these meetings. This is unbelievable." And your point was like, "No asshole! Every president has had the opportunity for this because it, it, it legit legitimizes yes, it's, them. They've wanted it for decades. His father wanted Kim's father and his grandfather would have given." anything for these meetings. And it's not like we are so much better off. We're worse off because of these meetings. We could have used these meetings to say, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, we will meet with you. But we've, we gave the concession. And then Trump thought, well, because we've given this concession, because we have this great buddy-buddy relationship, that Kim's going to say, you know what? I don't need those nukes anymore. You're right. Right. 
I oh, like like we we made this bullshit video. It's like if you give up your nukes, you know, you can be in pictures. You can be rich. And it's like these guys are like, oh god, I never thought of that. I don't have nuclear weapons, so I can dominate this population and threaten the world and blackmail everybody. It's like, oh, geez, I can get rich if I give up my <laughs> nuclear deterrent. Why didn't I think of that? Did you did you ever see when Dennis Rodman went there? The documentary. Yeah, I haven't seen the documentary. Oh, it's brilliant because yeah. he gets shit housed before a state dinner with yeah. with Kim, and <laughs> and then he he they say give a toast, and he's like, oh, okay, and he's like, listen, Kim. Your father did a lot of fucked up shit. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And you just see Kim turn to his interpreter and go, what did he say? That's <laughs> hilarious. So what I, what I will tell you is, so in that my long visit to, to North Korea, it was almost two weeks, and we had these minders, our hosts, um, from a, a, a part of the Korean gov- North, North Korean government, which is their economic development organization. So they took us around, and we actually got to know them pretty well. And we liked them because, you know, if you're in North Korea – like not everybody is is a gulag guard, and some people are just trying to survive or trying to help the the economy grow. So we kind right. of had a nice relationship. At the end of the of the visit, um, they had this beautiful dinner, and it was incredible. It was like something out of like a like a Disney movie, like Beauty and the Beast. And it was like this beautiful table, and and it was very formal and served multi course meal. At the end, they they rolled out this. Um, karaoke machine and our Korean hosts, they sang these Korean songs to us. And and I said, well, I wanted to give something back. And I said, well, do you have any English songs on this machine? And they didn't. (laughs) They had someone on their team um, who was a pianist and you could just hum a tune and she could play it. And so I kind of whispered in her ear, I said, like, here's the tune. When I give you the signal, play it over and over. And I got all these 30 North Koreans and the six of us, and we got in a circle and everybody held hands. And I said, all right, play. And then she played dun da 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 dun da, which is the Havanagila. And I taught the North Koreans to do a hora dance, which you can explain to your Gentile listeners. Amazing! And it, was, it was the first and maybe last hora that's happened in North Korea in Pyongyang. Wow, man! This is why we have more Jewish Nobel Prize winners <laughs> exactly. than anyone else. This is exactly why it's a Jewish uh, celebratory dance done at weddings, yep. done at bar mitzvahs, and we basically all dance in a circle. Anyone get lifted in a chair? You know that have that's <laughs> next. When, when if and when Kim gives up his nuclear weapons. We, the, the the people who visited and these 30-plus North Koreans who now know horror dancing, we will arrange for him to be lifted in the chair. That, wow. That's the kind of Trump incentive. Like, give up your nuclear deterrent. deterrent. We'll lift you in a chair. It's like, <laughs> oh, that's a good deal. This is this is God's work. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, oh, I, I've been uh, – because you're – you know, evolution is your thing and mm. like – I, I'm so fascinated to ask you this. So recently, a few years ago, I got my wisdom teeth out. Mm. And when they did the scan of my mouth, he said, well, you only have three wisdom teeth. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? And he's like, well, basically, you can have none. You can right. have up to six. Oh. He's like, but we're seeing as a trend over time that people have less and less hmm. for, out of evolutionary necessity because we you just don't use them. And I was like, that sounds That bunk. sounds like baloney. Ridiculous, like, how, right? like over how long? It's like over yeah. 30 years? <laughs> right. Like since he started practicing dentistry? Listen, Sheldon Katz was quite the uh, orthodontist. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like we've been evolving for almost 4 billion years. Like we've been over th- the last 30 years since I graduated <laughs> from 
dental school. From Syracuse Dentistry School. We, I mean, it kind of sounds like maybe... That's, again, more Yiddish. That's a bubamisa. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Wife's tale. But, uh, I mean, in theory, we don't need them anymore, right? And they do kind you of know, rot out of our heads. Well, no, no. Actually, that is now debated. So there's there's now a pro-wisdom teeth movement. Uh, and I don't know a oh, lot about this. God. Because, yeah, get them back. Sheldon Katz screwed you because there's stem cells that are being somehow generated. And there's the, I don't know the specifics of it, but I know that there's like this, this now there's this pro-wisdom teeth movement, which is take them out if they're pushing your teeth together, but they're not doing any harm, just, just wow. leave them. We're going to have to get Sheldon on the line There's here. so much to think about. Lifeline to Sheldon Katz. I think he retired. <laughs> <laughs> He's in Boca. <laughs> um, okay, last question. I ask everyone on the podcast yeah. this. Boxers. What? Love it. <laughs> what are your one or two Jamie Metzl commandments? Truths that you have discovered that yeah. you would want to impress upon someone else? Really, really great question. Probably my the one that I value the most is that life has these ups and downs. And that when you are at the up, it feels like it's going to last forever. And it's not. Hmm. By definition, the down is coming. And when you're down, it feels like the down is going to last forever. And by definition, it's not because at some point you're going to hit bottom and then you're, you're going to go up. And I think that if we could just all internalize that life is ups and downs, we wouldn't get manic in the ups and depressed in the downs. And for me, that is just really, really, really important. And then the second thing is the world is changing so fast that we all need to be just obsessive learners. Like we all need to follow our curiosity to the ends of the earth because that's the only way that we're going to keep up and that everybody has their unique perspectives, but your unique pers your perspectives need to be fed and they need to be fed with knowledge and access and just feed your curiosity. And you don't need to have a reason. You don't need to have a destination. Curiosity itself is a value. Love it. Thank you, man. Really my great pleasure. Oh, it was great. How about that? Jamie Metzl, check out his book, Hacking Darwin. It's really excellent. What a guy. Sorry that we Jewed it up so hard. But, you know, listen, uh, my wife said it best. When you Jews get together, you sure like to talk about Judaism a lot. And boy, do we. Um, also, I noticed I said fascinated and fascinating a lot in this interview. Sorry for that. Hey, fucking Josh, learn some new words, why don't you? Right? I don't know. I've had a lot of interviews the last couple weeks, uh, interviewing a lot of good people for the old podcast, and I'm a little burnt out. And I know you didn't ask, but hey, I'm, I'm oversharing, because this is a two-way street, whether you want to believe it or not. And I care about how you guys are. So... If you want to scream how you're feeling at your car radio right now or at your phone or your AirPods or however you're listening to this podcast, feel free. Do it now. I'm sorry you feel that way. Or, good for you. Or, <laughs> gotcha. You just look like a fucking psycho screaming at an inanimate object. Boo! Anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Love you. Bye.